Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast, brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of NSL Unscripted, uh, I will be interviewing Lieutenant Colonel Peter Cohn, Marine Corps. He is calling from the Pentagon at Judge Advocate Division, where he's currently stationed. Lieutenant Colonel Combe and I worked previously at Command and Staff College, where he went on to the planner's course for an additional year. Uh, he has a robust knowledge and has written a number of publications about the littorals and, and, and other topics. So I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time, sir, to come and speak to us. Would you, would you mind laying out a little bit more of uh, the billets you've held and some of your experiences? Yeah, Grant, of course. Uh, and thanks for having me on here. I got to say, um, after listening to the first couple of episodes, I kind of feel like you're scraping the bottom of the barrel uh, already um, with, with coming to me uh, as opposed to some of your previous guests. But yeah, so my background, um, you know, I, I started out as a trial and defense counsel and then got the, uh, the op law bug when I got the chance to deploy in, uh, in 2013 as an individual augment to, uh, to Afghanistan. Um, from there, uh, I was assigned to the, the grad course at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. And then after that, headquarters of Marine Corps at the Pentagon worked in our international and operational law branch. From there, I was the, uh, the command judge advocate at Marine Corps intelligence activity. And then following that, I was on the, uh, in the office of the staff judge advocate at the Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, following that assignment, I was in command and staff, as you mentioned, uh, with you. So that's sort of uh, sort of my background. Um, like I said, over the last uh, last ten years or so, uh, very op law focused. Okay, great. And I know you have uh, you, you've written on a number of subjects, including autonomous doctrine. Uh, you, you've written on design implementation of educational wargaming. Uh, but today, I'd like to focus on uh, some of the, the topics with the littorals. I know uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, we, you know, we talk about them often, but for the NSL unscripted audience, you know, we have a lot of soldiers, Air Force, Navy, uh, civilians who listen to it. Can you talk to us a little bit about why the littorals are such a complex area and some of the legal issues practitioners need, need to be aware of? Sure. So I think just from a factual standpoint, the, the littorals um, or, you know, along the coastline is a, is a complicated area factually. Um, you know, we in the Marine Corps talk a lot about the fact that I guess depending on which, uh, which source you're looking at, um, approximately half of the world's population of around 7 billion lives within 200 miles of a coastline. The majority of major cities are on the coastline, so there's there's some interesting interplays there where uh, along the littorals or along the coastline, you're dealing with large concentrations of the civilian population. Uh, you also deal with a lot of uh, critical infrastructure, uh, port facilities and things like that uh, that can present targeting challenges. Uh, and then you, you start to get into some of the, the interesting law of the sea issues, whether it's, you know, particularly as, as we look at some of China's excessive maritime claims, right? Are we talking low tide elevations? Are we talking rocks? Are we talking 
uh, islands, um, what are they entitled to? Is that you know the uh, uh, safety of navigation zone, or is that the 12 nautical mile territorial seas? Where does the uh, the exclusive economic zone come into play? Uh, so all, all of those things present some interesting legal challenges, and we in the Marine Corps uh, are, are looking at that largely through the concept for stand-in forces and, and the development of the Marine Littoral Regiment and the Tentative Manual for Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations, uh, which seek to operate largely within those littorals and, and leverage uh, unique geography in the, in the form of maritime choke points, which is the, the term that we're using operationally. But if we're talking legally, many of those are also international straits that, that have a particular navigational status uh, that the U.S. recognizes. So those are just some of the complications that we run into when we start talking about the littorals. Okay, and then, and I know, uh, again, another Marine thing, but your article, Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations, National Security Law at the Operational Level, what is this, we call it EABO, but what what is it, expeditionary advanced base operations for our our non uh, navy and marine brethren? Sure. So uh, the expeditionary advanced base operations is really um, it's it's sort of the the operational level glue uh, that ties together the tactical unit, the marine littoral regiment, and then this overarching concept for stand-in forces. So if we go big to small, right, the concept for stand-in forces. Uh, is to have small uh, risk-worthy forces that are able to exist and persist inside of the uh, the enemy weapon employment zone or the WES, right? So they're able to exist and persist inside the WES. And they're really designed to conduct three kind of broad areas of operation. So one is to deter adversaries uh, by presenting um, either a, a credible risk or by partnering uh, with other nations in, in the area. They're designed to win the reconnaissance and the counter-reconnaissance battle uh, and to conduct sea denial operations in support of naval fleet operations. So that's kind of what standing forces are designed to do. If you think about Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations, or EABO, that is sort of the operational construct for how we realize uh, this, this standing forces concept. And it's the general premise is to have a series of small, uh, self-sustaining, you know, force footprints uh, in littorals at maritime choke points and the like. Uh, those might be optimized for reconnaissance, counter-reconnaissance. To you know, to to use the term often bandied about in the Marine Corps, to sense and make sense in support of larger joint force targeting operations. They might be employed to uh, conduct sea denial activities. So present the risk of, of lethal fires to an adversary or actually conduct lethal fires to an adversary. And then they can also just engage in uh, security cooperation or security force assistance with, with host nations, in large part because part of this standing forces concept to, to sense and make sense, one of those kind of foundational pieces is just being present. Uh, so having a, a routine and a, a recurring presence in an area. Um, so you present if we're talking about the pacing threat China so that you present a potential list of adversaries that's not just the U.S. or maybe it's not just the Philippines or maybe it's not just Japan, right? But it's sort of all of those those countries together. 
So that's kind of what EABOR. There's these small footprints. Some of them, they can also be uh, forward arming and refueling points for aviation or FARPs, right? So you have these small force footprints that are able to conduct a, a range of different activities in support of those three kind of broad areas of operations, deterrence, recon, counter-recon, and sea denial operations. And then the Marine Littoral Regiment, or the MLR, is the, uh, is the Marine Corps' force design concept to be able to conduct EABO and realize this stand-in forces concept. And so for NSL practitioners who are going to be working in the littorals or with Marine Littoral Regiment or within EABO, what areas of national security law do you think they need to, you know, bone up on and prepare themselves in? What, what, what are, what's unique about this? Uh, how would you advise a national security law practitioner to, uh, to prepare for, for this type of fight? So I, I think there are a couple of different things that are some are basic competencies, right? And some of those are just going to be targeting and planning, right? So you think of some of your, your traditional targeting functions, right? And these are these are just baseline competencies that, that every judge advocate needs to have. They present here as well. Uh, gaining and maintaining target custody uh, to counter adversaries precision strike regime, right? So the adversary is going to have uh, precision strike assets. They might be aviation, they might be maritime. And you know, the goal for the uh, for the MLR or for standing forces is to be able to gain and maintain target custody. It may not be to actually conduct lethal strike, but overall in support of the larger joint force. When you think about the range of targeting activities, assignment of ISR, target maintenance, the ability to conduct time-sensitive and dynamic targeting in addition to uh, nomination and maintaining custody of deliberate targets, right? So those are very different targeting regimes. And, and these are, are things that largely in our current operations, and we think counterterrorism uh, with sustained footprints and mature theaters, uh, these, these are things where the tactical unit often is able to communicate very directly uh, with uh, a general officer-led joint task force or a general officer target engagement authority. If we're conducting these types of operations, particularly if we're thinking um, in the, the transition from crisis into armed conflict, uh, in the Pacific theater, we have to think about being able to conduct these things in a, a comms degraded or a comms denied environment. So much more is going to be expected of the judge advocate at the tactical or the, the operational level. Um, and, you know, we're currently sort of asking of folks when a G3 wants to articulate it, that we're not very good about planning for uh, succession of command or um, delegation of authorities because our comms are so good. We always just assume whoever needs to be on the VTC is going to be on the VTC to make the call. Um, that's not something I think we're going to be able to rely upon. Some of the other unique challenges, and, and they're discussed, that I don't know that we have the competency at the tactical level right now. As we think through information operations, um, and some of this is a, a function of where does the authority lie and where are those things uh, delegated? Those are most often held, uh, the execution of, of certain information operations at relatively high levels. Uh, is that is that a concept that is that is consistent with this stand in force concept? And what does the judge advocate need to know to be able to support those things? Uh, intelligence operations, particularly if we think about SIGINT or or collection activities, there's lots of discussion that 
and the MLR specifically or stand-in forces generally will have to conduct these types of activities. That's not something that we often think of or that we really see applicable at the tactical level right now. So I think those are, are some of the, you know, the core competencies that we maybe don't always see at the tactical level. There's a couple of other you know, niche things that I, I think present as well. And I, I think in terms of one of the interesting things that we've discussed often when I was in uh, when I was in Saw last year is and I'm sorry, sir, just for uh, for for the non-Marines, what, what Saw is a uh... yeah. I'm I'm sorry, Grant. Uh, so Saw, the School of Advanced Warfighting, produces operational planners. Um, it's the equivalent of uh, SAMS uh, or SAS, which uh, are the Army and the Air Force equivalents. That again, you go to school for an academic year get an additional MOS as a, an 0505 operational planner. And one of the things that we discuss frequently is how do we integrate into the Navy's uh, composite warfare uh, command construct or the CWC construct. Um, and, and this is an interesting one because it, it raises questions about the role of autonomy in, in lethal targeting. And so there's a, a construct wherein the, the MLR may be incorporated into the Navy CWC construct. Uh, which every time Marines talk about it makes it makes Navy folks nervous, perhaps using uh, something they call the, the Navy's Aegis Ashore combat system, which is uh, basically a virtualized um, portable version of the Aegis combat system that's that's on their ships. And it enables autonomous defensive engagement, but it, there's also a limited circumstance, at least currently employed, where it might permit an offensive engagement in very narrow circumstances. And, and I think that raises interesting questions for the MLR, where uh, perhaps the MLR is ashore, but the, the target engagement authority or the weapons release authority is not within the MLR. It's perhaps a, a, a Navy officer aboard, uh, aboard a Navy vessel, or even um, there's not a, a human making the decision to fire or not fire in the first place. But, but some version of an autonomous, autonomous decision-making. And, and I think something that makes Marine commanders uh, particularly uncertain with that construct is it potentially turns the Marine footprint into just a, a maintenance and maneuver package for a Navy fires asset. Um, and, and I think that's an interesting construct that folks need to think about. One of the other things that comes up uh, and we discuss it frequently, is uh, the ability to hide, the ability to blend in, um, the ability to conceal or strike the balance between concealing MLR presence and capabilities and then revealing them when, when it's advantageous to do so. Uh, and there, there are plenty of discussions about this as a broad concept. The other piece that I think is not well understood is uh, the, the timeline and the process to, to get those things approved and actually get into execution. And I think you know, one of the other things that, that presents to me that I find interesting is this 21st century foraging concept that comes up. I could see a, a huge administrative signature if I'm using you know, cash or if I'm using uh, like government purchase cards to or contracting agents or things like that uh, to procure goods and services to sustain a unit on the local economy. Um, this is particularly interesting, uh, I think, as we see the PRC uh, transitioning internally and then seeking to, 
to have others kind of within its uh, orbit of influence transition to a uh, to a cashless economy, and then the need to actually use um, whether it's credit cards or you know other mobile pay capabilities and the like, um, so that you don't have this administrative signature tied to a, a U.S. government purchase asset or the like. I suppose none of those are, are really specific to the littorals so much as they're specific to the stand in forces concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think one of the other things about the littorals that that often presents is um, you know, the, the discussion of leveraging key maritime terrain uh, and maritime choke points and the like. Um, and I don't pretend to be an expert on uh, on the law of the sea, but having to think through. Uh, what the what the legal implications are with respect to potentially closing international straits to the traffic of, of one or more countries. And then also thinking through what does it mean if I'm going to conduct those types of, of activities, uh, closing straits, you know, lethal fires against uh, against a state actor from the territory of another state, right? Because none of the key maritime terrain that we're talking about um, is is actually on U.S. territory. So those are some of the things that that I, I would recommend folks need to uh, to really study up on. Really on the theory that we're going to have potentially you know majors or captains uh, at the MLR advising on these operations, and many of these are not many of these are not competencies in sort of the breadth and depth. That, that I think we've really sought to cultivate within uh, within that that O3 and O4 population. And kind of with getting all of the, you know, legal uh, bona fides, getting up to speed for those O3s and O4s, I know you've had an, a, a lot of time, obviously, with, you know, Marine Corps Judge Advocate Matters, but you've also, you know, been in PME schools, you've been in planner schools, you're now at the headquarters element, You've, you've served with joint forces. What, what, with all of your knowledge, what would you advise those O3s and O4s on how to integrate with staffs, how to better serve their commanders? What, what, what would you recommend for them to get prepared to do this and really any national security law staff work they'll do? Yeah, so Grant, I think that's a really good question. And I think the key premise there is, is staff work, right? I've heard it said by, by a number of Army judge advocates, right, don't be a dentist, so don't just sit in your office and wait for somebody to come to you. I think that's part of it. You know, you have to you integrate with the staff by, by going to, to people's offices and by going to meetings and things like that. Um, it sounds simple and it, it sounds almost like a truism, but, you know, I, I tell the, the folks who, who work for me all the time, your, your first course of action when you're making contact with somebody should be to get up and go to their office. If you can't go to their office, get on a video call. If you can't do that, pick up the phone. And, and a, an email or a text message should be used as a last resort or to capture the output of one of those three other types of, of engagements. Um, and and you, you demonstrate to the other staff that you value the work that they do, that what they provide is important. right? I think too often, you know, we as lawyers, and I, I'm certainly guilty of it, uh, in the past, we as lawyers have a tendency to think of ourselves as being the smartest folks in the room. And my gosh, this isn't that hard, J3. Just read the order. 
Um, but I think that's the wrong answer, right? They have very particular skill sets and competencies that they bring to it. And you need to, you need to understand what those are. You need to value those and you need to plug in where it is that you can add value. I think one of the other things that I would articulate, and, and it's one of the things that I took out of command and staff, it's one of the things that I took out of my attendance at SAW, and some of it is the educational piece, but as much of it is, is engaging with your peers, is thinking like, thinking like a planner, thinking like an operator, trying to think like and put yourself in the shoes of a commander. I think one of the traps that we fall into as as young judge advocates in particular is looking at things as, as very sort of black and white, like this is the law and, and this is what's legal and this is what's illegal. And it's a relatively narrow perspective. I know, I know General Mattis, Secretary Mattis at one point actually mentioned to, uh, to a group of attorneys when, when I, was, uh, I was a young defense counsel uh, and he agreed to speak to the Defense Services Organization for the Marine Corps. He said, you know, the, lawyers have a tendency to think about things in a a very narrow perspective, which is to think about, you know, again, what is the law? What is the policy? What is the authority? What's yes? What's no? With the understanding that oftentimes things aren't, uh, aren't quite so black and white. And particularly when it comes to, to targeting and target engagement and the like, there are rules that, that the attorneys are best situated to articulate. There's often risk, maybe with status of forces or the like, that the lawyers are best positioned to inform, uh, but ultimately the decision to assume risk uh, is one borne by commanders. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's one that, you know, that that we're not particularly good at as, as judge advocates, right? Uh, oftentimes we fall into yes or no, uh, when really it's here's the rule set, here are the considerations, but ultimately it's up to the commander to, to make that determination and assume risk. I would also offer, and, and you mentioned it, uh, one of the things that I value about my, my time in, in schools, particularly those that are not related to being a judge advocate, is the opportunity to think about things uh, that are, are not specific to uh, the judge advocate MOS. And so the opportunity to write about educational wargaming or you know, the opportunity it saw to think about well, what does trans-regional risk analysis look like, and how would how do you think about that? How do you conceptualize that as a, as an operator or as a planner or as a commander, um, and how does that help inform uh, my priorities going forward? So I, I think those are things that I value as well, right? It's it's very easy for us as lawyers to get sucked into thinking about just lawyers, but it is the profession of arms, and you know we choose to put on the uniform, so we should. We should explore uh, and try to learn uh, about as much of that profession as we can, in addition to being expert in, in the field of being a judge advocate. So to that end, sir, beyond PME, beyond those staff experiences, any books that you might recommend as far as where people can read further, build their knowledge base that you think would, would help the uh, an NSL practitioner out there? So I, I would offer... You know, we did a, an awful lot of reading uh, in, in Saul last year to the tune of, I think it was 32,000 pages during the course of the year. Uh, two things that I read that I found particularly useful. There's a Max Hastings uh, Bomber Command who wrote about the establishment of the independent uh, Air Force, uh, the RAF in Britain, 
Um, and then the establishment of Bomber Command as distinct from Fighter Command. And it's an interesting kind of historical case study that, that highlights some of the compromises that had to be made, some of the bureaucratic infighting, um, but also it, it sort of gives you a, a flavor of, of like the nature of, of military innovation, uh, both from a material standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, and then from an organizational standpoint. And it, it really, I think, helped me understand the inherent compromises whenever you're looking to, to understand develop and leverage a new capability or a new technology. Uh, one of the other ones that I found really, really helpful is uh, retired Navy Captain Wayne Hughes wrote a book called Fleet Tactics. And uh, I found that really, really helpful and had a lot of applicability to understanding what makes an effective uh, MLR, EABO, uh, stand in force. Uh, because if we think about those concepts as supporting the naval fleet, if we think about them as, as being integrated into the CWC construct, understanding the way the Navy fights, I think, is, is critical to understanding the best way to leverage those, those assets and those capabilities. Uh, a couple of other things that I've read recently, you know, so one is it, it, was, it was interesting to me. And it's uh, by Eric Fauner. It's Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. Uh, and the basic premise behind it is that, uh, is that post-Civil War Reconstruction wasn't complete until um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Agree or disagree, it's an interesting premise. Um, and I found that uh, a really informative read. And just, I, I don't know, sometimes I just read what I'm, what I'm interested in reading, and that was one of them. Uh, and then another one. It's called uh, Beyond Fair Chase, The Ethic and Tradition of Hunting. Um, I pick that up every now and again. I also share it with my boys. One of the things we enjoy doing is, is fishing and hunting when we get the opportunity. And it's, it's got a little bit of a flavor of kind of the, the historical development of hunting from pure subsistence through sport uh, and what makes, what makes for ethical practices uh, in the field and how that's become a, a tradition that's very much part of America. And then uh, the last thing is actually what I'm reading right now. So I have plenty of time on the train uh, as I come into the Pentagon, uh, about an hour up and an hour back, is I'm reading uh, Carter Malkasian's book, The American War in Afghanistan. I'm about two-thirds of the way through that. You know, my first deployment was to Afghanistan uh, and then a number of other deployments since, and they've all, uh, they've all touched and concerned Afghanistan in some way. And while I was in school, when uh, we completed our, our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, so I was very much focused on that piece of it. You know, now having an opportunity to read, uh, you know, for my own personal purposes, um, taking an opportunity to reflect, read about, uh, read about a historian's perspective about uh, what went right, what went wrong in Afghanistan. Um, and there's a, a host of things in there from interagency coordination to, uh, to planning considerations and, and shifting planning priorities, planning at the operational level, planning at the strategic level. Uh, I, I don't know that I've got, uh, got enough into it um, to really have a fully formed opinion on it. I think it's a, I think it's a very well-written book. I don't necessarily agree with everything in it, but I, I I highly recommend that to anybody who's interested in understanding 
uh, sort of what went wrong in Afghanistan. Thank you so much, sir. You know, I just wanted to say, I, I know you're really busy at the Pentagon, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and, and talking with me today. And uh, I know everyone out there listening to this is is really going to appreciate your giving us a clear understanding of the littorals, EABO, the Marine Littoral Regiment, and some some legal concerns, uh, some of your, your staff and leadership advice on what you've learned, and then just some, some great backgrounds and book recommendations. Uh, I really appreciate you taking taking time out of your, your busy schedule, sir. Yeah, my, my pleasure, Grant. Um, like I said, uh, listening to the, the previous episodes uh, of your podcast, you know, I feel like uh, maybe I'm punching above my weight a little bit. But, you know, if I, I had to say, uh, if I had to leave you with any kind of closing thoughts, right, um, I think opportunities like this are really, really important. Um, it's an opportunity to talk with uh, with your peers and to talk amongst professionals to understand the concerns that are facing the judge advocate community and the DOD writ large. Um, and, and like I said, maybe I'm punching above my weight considering your past guests. The thing that's always kind of guided me in my career is to think about showing up to a place and, and whether it was the, the billet that I wanted or not or the location I wanted or not, uh, show up work hard, uh, try to learn as much as I can, and just be a good teammate. And I think as much as any practical competency on the substantive legal work, if you can do those three things, if you can work hard, seek to learn as much as possible, and just try to be a good teammate, you'd be successful. Yes, sir. Uh, completely agree. And and, uh, and we can't let all the soldiers have all the fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right as usual right you send uh you know army air force 06 and then you know marine 04 05 and we, we you know we plug right in yes sir all right sir i really appreciate it and we'll be talking to you soon this episode of nsl unscripted was brought to you by the national security law department at the u.s army's the judge advocate general's legal center and school the views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.